Hello, and welcome to episode 77 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is our own Glenn Fay, Research Fellow in Education Policy at the Center for Independent Studies, and sometime host of the CIS's flagship public affairs program, On Liberty. We'll be talking to Glenn about his latest CIS paper, Failing to Teach the Teacher, an Analysis of Mathematics Initial Teacher Education. Glenn Fay, how are you? Fantastic. That's how I saw it. Thanks for having me on the program. Uh, good to be on this side of the microphone. <laughs> well, it seems like you're alternating week by week. Look, let's start with the basics. What is initial teacher education? So to become a teacher is actually not a straightforward process. It uh, requires education into the field. It requires accreditation and it requires registration to be able to be a practicing teacher. Uh, so a significant portion of that, of course, is the initial teaching component. And this is where uh, trainee teachers, particularly through university, uh, go and learn all of all the things that are considered to be prerequisite knowledge to become an effective teacher in the classroom. Uh, typically, it's uh, teachers will undergo a bachelor program of uh, up to three years of uh, bachelor education in in uh, uh, in a, a range of pedagogical uh, subject specific pedagogical knowledge, um, as well as broadly understanding theories of learning, those sorts of things that are all relevant to being able to practice in the field. Uh, in addition to all of the practical knowledge that's that uh, is gained through. Uh, pre-service practicum, these these sorts of things. And uh, there's there's quite a lot of rules around how that all works. It's quite a complex picture. Uh, but there's also it's a changing space. So it's not just students that will complete a bachelor's degree these days. You might also complete a master's degree if you've got, a, you know, particularly a subject area specialty. You might do a bachelor's degree in your subject area of specialty and then undertake a master's degree to uh, get the teaching component. And that's been a quite a different shift in preference for pre-service teachers in recent years who typically did the, a one-year graduate diploma. So that's ITE <laughs> in a nutshell. And tell us about your paper, which is uh, failing to teach the teacher an analysis of mathematics initial teacher education. What kind of data did you use for this and what are your basic findings? So, I mean, first and foremost, we, we wanted to look at uh, we wanted to drill into why is that students' achievement in mathematics has been in steep decline and has been significantly greater in mathematics than the other domains. But of course, it is a cross-the-board picture in our education system. But mathematics is of particular concern and has been really contentious in, uh, in recent years about how to effectively teach in maths. And in common with where a lot of government policymakers have looked to is to see that initial teacher education is a critical space in not only preparing new teachers, but setting really setting in motion a set of uh, expectations for what good practice looks like. And of course, being a really formative part of any teacher's journey is, is that initial teaching experience. So we thought this was an important area for us to look at. It's also especially important because Australia has quite a large proportion of its teachers who are early career. So that is, we have a very high proportion of teachers with five years or less experience. Um, so there's very good reason to believe that ITE is especially important uh, in the Australian context. So that certainly motivated us to have an investigation into, well, what is it that's being preferenced in math teachers' initial teacher education? Uh, by and large, this, you know, in fact, let me backtrack a second. We To do so, we looked at 
31 universities in which we were able to identify uh, quite clearly and in, in sufficient detail uh, the contents of, uh, of course unit outlines. And we did a keyword search of those course outlines to try to get a picture of what were the common words, common phrases that were being used. They can give us some clues about the kind of pedagogical emphasis that was being placed in uh, particular units and, and across uh, different programs. Now, uh, in my very amateur knowledge of teaching, because of course I teach at the university level where we have no teacher education <laughs> whatsoever, but I understand from your paper that there are instructivist and constructivist approaches to education, not just to math education, but to all education. Can you explain for us what the difference is and why you might prefer one over the other? Yeah, so I mean, in, in a sense, we're, we're creating a, a distinction between you know, what, are, what is a blurry area, of course, in education, but it's, it's, use, it's a useful distinction to make in, in terms of clarifying priorities. By and large, the instructivist and constructivist divide comes about based on differing theories of learning. Now, the, a constructivist theory of learning is largely, largely inspired by constructivist ideas and the idea that individual students can uh, construct their own meaning toward, uh, toward learning. And this, therefore, necessitates instruction that is more student-led. On the alternative side is a constructivist idea, which largely places a, a dominant role for teachers to lead instruction and focuses on the inability of a, as a student or more generally a novice learner, someone who's not familiar with, with some uh, content, which technically is something that's uh, a biologically secondary piece of information uh, that they need, to, they need the instructor to, to teach them. Uh, and this, not surprisingly, an instructivist theory of learning necessitates a greater role for teachers to lead instruction compared to a more student-led approach. We have uh, Wade and Anthony in the chat, both of whom say hi and say they've already read the paper and loved it. So uh, kudos to you on the paper. Um, what When you're talking about an instructivist approach, it sounds to me like that's a lot more work for the teacher, <laughs> whereas the constructive approach seems to offload some of that work onto the student. Is that an unfair criticism of constructivism, or is that really what you're saying in the paper? Look, in the, in the defense of constructivist educators, there's no malign intent. Let me be very clear. Teachers that, that promote and uh, practice a more constructivist approach genuinely believe that they are incorporating best knowledge about what the most effective practices are. Uh, so I need to be very clear about that. It's, there's no, no, um, uh, no grounds on which that, that any educator, you know, would, um, would uh, practice something that, that, it, that they didn't believe genuinely to be uh, the most appropriate form possible. What's, what we do understand about a more constructivist-led approach is that it's suitable for some students at some times. It's suitable for certain kinds of problems, but by and large, students also need a significant amount of, of guidance, uh, students of all kinds, and it largely comes through to how we learn new information more broadly. So in the most general sense, 
when we, when we have information that we call biologically secondary, basically anything that we have not naturally evolved as humans to be able to acquire, we require instruction. We need, we need somebody to help guide us to understand uh, that, new, that piece of information. As we become experts of that, of that new information, we no longer require that level of, of, of instruction from, uh, from another party. And we're actually able to guide our own learning and, and challenge our own assumptions and think more critically those other kind of higher order sorts of skills that, that we come to associate these days with more or less 21st century learning and, and other related um, concepts. So the point really being that there's a time and place for a more constructivist approach. And there's a time and place for a more instructivist approach. Uh, But what we can see from from our analysis really is that there seems to be an overwhelming emphasis when it comes to initial teacher education in that constructivist side. And I believe this is leaving teachers unprepared to deliver the the critical teacher-led instructivist practices that are really essential, particularly in the early foundational elements of uh, teaching new information, which is what education is really all about is teaching someone new information they didn't know already. Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're an educational researcher. I'm an educator. Uh, I'm very well aware, and I think most teachers are very well aware, that when we have to actively instruct, that requires a lot of preparation on our part, a lot of, well, just sheer work on our part. Whereas when we assign, say, group work or self-directed learning, frankly, that's an opportunity for us to do something else while the students are working. (laughs) Let the students work on something while we take a break. Now, I I know you're, you're not sufficiently politically incorrect to say anything like that in your paper. I don't want to imply that you feel anything like that, but I am trying to get it. Why are teaching programs so intent on having teachers take this constructivist approach. I mean, I I get from your paper that they are focused on constructivism. I get from your paper that you believe that's an imbalance that needs to be addressed. But why are they so keen on constructivism? Well, to be fair on on, uh, classroom educators, that's how they've been taught. Uh, So the reason that they've been taught, which is that, I guess, that next stage to that question is that what, you, what we obviously know of the last 20, 30 years is that initial teacher education has become the domain of education academics and less so the domain of experienced practicing teachers. Education academics have long uh, taken a, a more constructivist approach toward understanding of student behavior and education more broadly, uh, whereas practicing teachers have been a little bit more skeptical traditionally. And I, I paraphrase significantly, of course, is many more, uh, as much more gray to that. But, but by and large, education academics do have an overwhelming preference toward those theories of learning. And, and perhaps those things are important considerations within the academia. But uh, the, the translation into practice, I think, is something that actually confuses initial teacher educators who are really, as a trainee teacher, I really want to learn how, to, how can I be effective in the classroom? And that's something that consistently comes up in teacher surveys is that despite having longer degrees, despite having more pedagogical courses under their belts, teachers increasingly say they're underprepared for the real world of the classroom. And that to me draws, you can draw a very straight line between that and the the obvious um, emphasis upon uh, university-based education academics 
that, of course, dominate the ITE program. And I should add that I, I don't feel that teachers uh, look at uh, facilitating more collaborative and student-led activity as an opportunity to cut corners. I, I really firmly don't believe that. I think it's that they have a, there's a genuine belief that that's, uh, particularly in, the, in modern education systems, that uh, the best way that students learn is through their own inquiry and exploration. And it's believed that these are that the most effective way to uh, to provide that kind of instruction is to allow students to, to guide their own learning. Uh, and I mean, the other point I, I should add there is that particularly with reference to maths, I think it's particularly profound because so many educators are concerned that maths isn't fun or that, and they feel that students disengage with maths because it's not fun. And that their their uh, primary part of their their role is to help engage and interest students in maths, and to do so, uh, naturally they engage in activities that are a bit more engagement enhancing. These are things like applying to real world problems, or allowing for students to take more of a lead, uh, rather than you know the, the whole drill and kill kind of approach of you know let's you know let's let's learn formulas and learn times tables. You can see that a teacher who wants to facilitate greater engagement, at least in the short term, will look to more student-led approaches. Of course, in the long term, engagement comes from having that foundational knowledge to be able to successfully navigate and explore more challenging kinds of problems. Uh, so it's uh, short-sightedness would be an unfair characterization, but it's that teachers do see an immediate sugar hit from, uh, from more constructivist, uh, inquiry-based, problem-based type approaches and, and uh, in large part, uh, effectively diagnose that as being effective instruction. But when we look at it in a longer term, that, that doesn't appear to be the case. Now, I've been self-indulgent too long. We are a live show, which means we do want to get questions in from the chat, live questions from our viewers. And we have, they've been pouring in. I have a question I'll start with from Peter. At what grade should mathematics start being taught explicitly well by and large i mean mathematics is something that we uh we begin to gain competency in different areas of mathematics from a very young age like like reading and like language uh it's less well understood those early foundations toward math so some of those early competencies are concepts of quantity you know that this is more than this and that there's a relative quantity element you know that this is three times the size of this you know um there's elements of numeracy that become, you know, the basic counting that that's, can start very early in, in a child's development. Uh, but of course, there's other more complex things like abstraction, uh, like uh, you know, manipulation of of uh, of numbers. You know, these sorts of things uh, that, of course, take place a little later in in someone's schooling. So it's a complicated question, um, and I think an important caveat is that it's an area of really uh, really important investigative work at the moment. Is really trying to firmly understand what the appropriate stage and developmental journey is for young, young learners around mathematics. And it's something that uh, I can say at CIS is something that, that is you know, very much firmly in our interest over the next, uh, next little while is to better understand that, that, that journey that students take and, and help to bring that understanding to the level that it has become with reading and, and, and literacy more broadly. As I mentioned earlier, several people who are active in our chat have already read your paper, Failing to Teach the Teacher, an Analysis of Mathematics Initial Teacher Education. And included in that is Wade. Wade wants has read your paper and has a question about 
PISA results. And perhaps you could tell us briefly what PISA is, but he says, you noted that Finland has slipped even more than Australia in its mathematics results. To what do you attribute that? Well, largely the same sort of thing, same sorts of things we've just been discussing. Uh, if there's any country that has taken a greater turn toward uh, student-led and inquiry-based approaches, the only other place that uh, you could point to is Finland. So it's it's really no coincidence that both countries have had or shared a similar trajectory. Now, the PISA assessment, it's the Program for International Student Assessment. Uh, it's administered by the OECD and run across countries all over the world, not just OECD member countries, but also uh, participating school systems. Uh, it's the closest thing we have to a, a, a effectively a universal benchmark of student achievement. 15-year-olds uh, complete the assessment by and large. Uh, and so this is students in years nine and years 10, in various stages and different school systems have got different benchmarks for those things. But it's 15-year-olds all around the world sitting a similar test moderated to be internationally comparable, all those sorts of things. Uh, typically, the domains are reading, science, maths, and also uh, some innovative domains or uh, domains that get shifted into uh, to provide a, a deeper dive into alternative areas. Why is PISA important? Well, PISA is important because it's a very, it's a quite a challenging test. So it really tests students' ability at the age of 15 of their deeper knowledge of concepts because it's a more complex kind of structure than, say, like a NAPLAN assessment, for instance, which is very foundational in nature. Uh, so the PISA assessment is a critical marker for uh, the likely success of students post-school. Um, and certainly, as uh, CIS members will, will know from a, a recent chat we had with our education economist, Eric Hanyashek, PISA results are the greatest uh, uh, greatest force in explaining relative wealth of countries over the long term. So it's absolutely critical that, um, that we look to PISA as a marker of educational uh, achievement across the population. If you go back 30 years in Australia, teacher education was done in colleges of advanced education. It then was transformed into, they were then transformed into universities, and we now see teacher education occurring in the university system. Anthony asks, do we need to replace these teacher education institutions, that is teacher education in universities, with some other form of teacher education? Look, it's a good question. And so there's all kinds of alternatives that are considered around the world. Uh, what? So if you look at the Teacher preparation programs, which is a more general term than initial teacher education, to be clear. Uh, so this is this kind of covers the broad suite of uh, alternative preparation that might be mostly employment-based, for instance. Uh, generally, what we find is that what makes a program more effective is having high-quality uh, practical training during that preparation period. The level of coursework that's undertaken doesn't appear to be a significant explainer in different outcomes. And that's relevant because in New South Wales, for instance, the government has announced that they uh, will support teachers to have a more flexible entry point to teaching if they have previous work experience. So it doesn't mean that someone just comes into teaching cold and, and then they're just left at the, at the front of the room and, and so you know, kind of work it out as you go. It's that based upon uh, a new teacher's previous experience, you might be able to find uh, you might be able to find some uh, 
kind of more flexible pathways that are suitable to their background knowledge. And we're still learning what, what those most effective pathways might be. But um, what we can see from evidence around the world is that the a length of degree and the kind of degree that are held don't seem to be ex- significantly, don't seem to expli- uh, significantly explain how, be- how well prepared a teacher is. So by uh, alternatively, different programs can produce very much the same outcomes. So the, the structure of the program doesn't appear to be as important as the quality of training that's provided ultimately. In your paper, you suggest a system of inspectors that state inspectors would actually um, ensure that teacher training programs enforce a set of curriculum standards. Of course, universities cry academic freedom when you talk about that. Oh, could you explain to us what, what an inspectorate system would, would be and what would it intend to accomplish? That's a good question. So in a, there are quite a lot of additional rules around the regulation of initial teacher education on top of those broader regulatory rules around university uh, courses and accreditation and so on. So it's additional functions other than, the, other than those that are held by TEXA for, for those of the audience that are familiar with it. Uh, so within initial teacher, teacher education, there are, things, there are uh, requirements that different courses include certain number of hours of practical training, for instance. There's uh, requirements about the kind of capstone unit uh, so there are additional interventions that already exist in initial teacher education compared to the broader tertiary sector. So that, that's the first point, that, that, um, that there are some differences there. And it's true that, there's, that there is a, a potential conflict around the idea of academic freedom. However, universities have known the expectations around initial teacher education uh, for many years now about, and that disappointment that policymakers of different colours have expressed about the preparation of teachers uh, that does warrant a degree of intervention to ensure that there's better quality assurance. Because it's, and it's not just me saying that, the policymakers, of course, say that. Uh, Schools say it all the time. Schools say that the teachers that come to them simply aren't well prepared and they've got limited ways of knowing which teachers are likely to be better prepared than others because there are very few markers of which programs are better preparing new teachers than others. So it seems to me that despite all of the levers that government and policymakers at state and federal level have attempted to pull around setting around compliance and accreditation standards and the like, ITE providers in universities don't appear to be responding the way that policymakers and educators expect. Uh, so it seems to me that we do need to take, uh, uh, we, I, I think it would, we do require a firmer hand when it comes to quality assurance because the stakes are very high. I mean, the underprepared teachers significantly impact upon student achievement in the classroom and take many years, many more years than uh, to become a fully accomplished teacher. And that's unfair upon those new teachers as well. Uh, so in my view, that there is a, a rationale to see that uh, to see that the quality of initial teacher education is lifted. There's also a question of how best to do so. Now, at the moment, we have very indirect and very subjective kind of ways of monitoring the ITE sector. Some of these are asking teachers how well prepared they are for the classroom or asking their satisfaction with their university provider uh, or how well they can articulate in a portfolio 
how good a teacher they are effectively or how, how good their knowledge is of, of, uh, of teaching practice and so on against the standards. Now, these are all quite indirect. What, you really, what we really want to see is that teachers can actually practice what, what, the, what, um, what is currently known to be the most effective practices. And if teachers are unable or are not confident in practicing uh, in, in those forms, well, that's a very good indicator that the program hasn't adequately prepared them to do so. So it seems to me that the, you know, the best way to see how teachers are, what teachers are practicing is, in fact, to, to directly observe that. Um, and uh, inspectorates do seem to do that. So uh, in the UK, there is an inspectorate that does exactly that. Uh, it, it inspects ITE providers uh, based upon not just what is taught in the university classroom, but also what teachers are demonstrating in their pre-service uh, classrooms. So this, this, to me, it provides a really good uh, and rounded set of indicators that can point to quality in the ITE sector and would potentially be, uh, uh, be a more direct lever for ensuring that responsiveness of providers. Ben, we have to wrap up, but I want some very rapid quick answers from you to a few questions. Um, first, what are Asian countries doing right? So by and large, what you see is that, um, and of course we can't, we can't have a blanket there, but by and large, some of the most effective school systems focus on memorization. They focus on uh, very firm teacher-led instruction. They focus on more challenging problems for students. Um, and they don't focus as much on applied problems, but on uh, building those foundational blocks. Okay. Second, should all new teachers have mentors assigned to them? Mentors make a big difference. Um, the, it's not a matter of just having a mentor, though. It's about having a mentor who is themselves instructionally effective. That means we need to be very selective about who becomes mentors. And there's a huge dividend to be had from really instructionally effective mentors transmit very and, and result in very effective new teachers. So uh, good mentors, not just having a mentor. Okay, and finally, last question, how can our understanding of good English teaching or literacy teaching inform our understanding of good math teaching? Well, yeah, certainly anyone that's followed the, the decades of debate about how to most effectively teach reading will probably have picked up on some very similar parallels. Uh, an obvious one here is in the a key distinction in the reading element is that uh, what we call uh, the whole language approach to reading really is founded on the idea that simply immersing children in words ultimately will make them good readers. Now, I, I cut that down for us in the final minutes of this, but what you can gather from that is some, there's actually something quite similar there between the idea of constructivists in math education that Basically, if students are, in, are able to uh, participate in enough kinds of problems and are immersed in a, a range of uh, real-world examples, that they'll also be able to decode the, the fundamental understandings about uh, mathematical procedures. And like in reading where that turned out to very much not be the case, so it's also true that that conceptual knowledge doesn't translate directly to having the procedural knowledge that students really need to be able to have all the decoding strategies that are necessary in maths to be successful. Glenn Fay, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. And you can download Glenn's paper, Failing to Teach the Teacher, on the CIS website, 
right now. Uh, thanks also to Nico Malian, our producer. Our executive producer is Max Hawk Weaver. The director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvatore Babonis. Next week, I'll be interviewing Harry Kazianis, the director of the Korea program at the Center for the National Interest, on the prospects for peace on the Korean Peninsula. We hope you will see us then next week on On Liberty.